And hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Kevin, I want to start with some breaking news out of the governor's office Thursday involving the broadband mess, the Idaho Education Network uh, fight. Uh, you've been covering this for three years for us. Uh, walk us through the agreement, how much it cost, what's it mean, where we go next. Yep. Uh, let's keep the players straight. We're Idaho Education News. We're still alive and right. well. We may have written what amounts to the last big chapter in the saga of the Idaho Education Network, the uh, ill-fated statewide broadband project. So on Thursday afternoon, uh, Governor Otter announced that the state has reached a settlement with the two vendors on this project for about $3.5 million, just a hair below $3.5 million. Um, And what this does, uh, as I've had it explained to me, what this does is it basically presses the reset button, and we're now at a point where it's as if the Idaho Education Network project never existed. So, yeah, I, it's like it's like that season of Dallas where uh, where uh, you know Pamela Ewing wakes up and says that the previous season was a dream. I think that's kind of the way this has been explained to me. But but seriously, what it does is uh, the state is not going to pursue any more uh, claims against the vendors. And according to state law, they could have and you know legally may have been ha- forced to go back to the vendors and demand money that was paid on an illegal contract. Conversely, the vendors are not going to go after money that they had contended that the state owed them for several years when the state cut off payments on the project during this long legal battle. Right. It leaves the state and its school districts whole at this point. Right. right? And and the school districts were a big linchpin in this whole thing because separate from the Idaho Education Network, which is broadband, which is high-speed internet, Uh, a lot of school districts went to the vendors and they bought other technology, kind of add-on projects, Um, went to the vendors and said, you know, can we get some some other equipment? And that funding for that got cut off, too, in this whole convoluted legal battle and and the, the convoluted struggle over whether the federal government was going to free up uh, payments to the districts and payments to the state. So we're done in the sense that the courtroom battles appear to be over. Um, But to go back to my, you know, the season of Dallas that didn't exist metaphor, this had and has really serious implications for the state. Um, I tried to tally it up yesterday, uh, Thursday, when the, when the news broke. And going back, looking at our past coverage and doing a little bit of math, I come to the conclusion that the state wound up paying at least $18.2 million for various uh, reasons in the wake of the fight over the contract. You know, direct costs that I think you can fairly link to the legal struggle over the Idaho Education Network. And we're talking about money that was used to bail out the system, to keep broadband in the schools when it appeared that the the whole system was going to be unplugged. Uh, I'm talking about legal fees, uh, not just the legal fees that the state paid its own lawyers, but legal fees that the state had to pay to Syringa Networks, the 
the company that sued the state and won in court. And now I'm talking also about this $30.5 million. When I tally it all up, and you can walk through my math at idahoatnews.org, I come to $18.2 million in taxpayer money that can fairly be directly linked to this whole legal struggle. It's been a long process. And I find myself going back to 2008, long before there was an Idaho Education News, when this network was created by the legislature, legislators voted for it unanimously, and were told in the fiscal note for the legislation that this would cost not one dime of state general fund money. Well, obviously, nine years of hindsight, we know that not to be the case. Well, real quickly, uh, it's a great story. There's a lot of details at Idaho Education News that we won't be able to even come close to covering in our podcast today. But real quickly, um, what do you think happens next, or, or where do we go next, or what does this mean uh, to parents and, and, and educators? Okay, so for parents and educators, let's take care of the sure. most important yep. issue here. There's still broadband in the schools. Yep. There has always been broadband in the schools. It was a, a close call there for a while in, in the past, but broadband remained in the, the schools uninterrupted, remains in the schools We're uninterrupted. We're not ripping equipment out of the classrooms, and, anything and like nothing that. Nothing like that is going to happen with the settlement now because uh, for the past two years, districts have basically gone their own way right. and, and cut their own deals with, with vendors. So, you know, that's not an issue. But the policy implications of this remain really far-reaching. I mean, this, this whole fiasco spawned two different interim committees at the State House, one to look at broadband, another to look at the, the state's procurement process. Um, this is a, a policy issue that I think is going to be one of the defining, uh, one of the defining characteristics, one of the defining moments, uh, stories of the governor's uh, three terms in office. I mean, this was established in 2008, uh, a little bit over a year after uh, Bochata was first elected governor. The contracts were put together by Mike Gortney, a longtime Otter confidant. Here we are, uh, 2011, uh, the beginning of uh, Governor Otter's 11th, term, 11th year in office, and we are finally to a point of settlement. I mean, this has been a, now it, it's been a recurring theme. It's been a recurring problem for the state and for uh, school districts. So it, it is sort of a final chapter, but uh, it's uh, a sobering uh, story for, for the state, for sure. Yeah, uh, catch up on all the details. Uh, if there's continued follow-up, if there are more developments, Kevin will continue uh, to cover this closely. Uh, I want to get back to the legislative session, <laughs> which is still very much uh, alive and well. The final pieces of the state budget uh, are coming together kind of as we speak, almost as we record um, this podcast. But Kevin, as the final pieces of the budget are being set, there are some education issues, correct? We're learning a little bit more about uh, where we stand and what's going forward. Yeah, it looks like Friday morning was the last kind of regularly scheduled budget session for the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. This was their last uh, go-round with agency budgets. They may still have to come back and do some last-minute work, but what they set on Friday morning were budgets uh, to deal with career technical education and all of the other components of the State Board of Education budget. A couple of highlights there. Uh, put, uh, JFAC wants to put more money into uh, post-secondary programs to support career technical education. Um, they also want to put $1 million into the State Board's budget 
for that uh, teacher evaluation training issue that we've been talking about all session. So we know where the, the, the budget committee wants to put that money. State board's budget, not uh, Superintendent Ibarra's budget. And we know now that it's a $1 million line item that the budget committee wants, not the $2.5 million right. that uh, Governor Otter had asked for at the beginning of the session. So that now has to course its way through both houses and get to the governor's desk. So um, the pieces of the budget are starting to fall into place, and we, we will have uh, full coverage of that at IdahoEdNews.org, and we'll have uh, follow-up as the, uh, the budgets work their way along. You know, so... It's starting to gel a little bit, um, but you know, it's still got to get through both houses. Sure. And just a couple of things to keep in mind to put this in perspective. If these budgets do go forward and set uh, the way that uh, they've been set right now, really basically removes Superintendent Ibarra and her State Department of Education office from the evaluations process. Uh, the oversight, the training is going to the state board. The superintendent is a member of the state board, but that's a completely separate office, so it's really been taken out away from her office and given to the state board of education. I wanted to and even about, though it's only a million dollars right. in the context of you know uh, of the overall state budget, this is a line item that's uh, you know legislators have a lot of skin in the game on this because a lot of legislators have said we want this evaluation system fixed, we want it functional. And if we don't see evidence of that, uh, we're not uh, going to want to fund the career ladder. We're going to be taking a lot uh, more of a critical look at the career ladder. And that's what we're talking about uh, this year. We're talking about $62 million in in money for, for teacher pay, for, yep. for teacher pay. Raises. And that is safe. That is already in the budget. That's in the budget. But, uh, you know, again, I think for a lot of legislators, this evaluations piece ties back to the career ladder piece and, and it's all part of the same construction <laughs> as they look at uh, how we're going to fund education how we're going to fund teacher pay and evaluation is likely to continue to be an issue going forward uh, legislators will continue uh, to watch the validity uh, of those evaluations as they consider next the next year's budget next year when we get to the legislature in 2018 so we know a little bit about what's in the budget. The budget is pretty well taken shape at this point. I want to talk about something that, as we sit here, the morning of March 10th is not in any budget right now, and that is funding for the Rural Schools Education Network that Superintendent Ibarra has been pushing for. For the past two years, she has called it one of her very top legislative priorities. So far, there is no funding. She's asked for $300,000 and it, to be fair, it may not be a surprise that there's no funding yet because there is a bill. This is kind of one of those complicated mm -hmm. policy mm -hmm. and budget issues that keeps legislators awake all night. Uh, but there is a bill making its way forward uh, that just passed the House earlier this week that would create the policy, so to speak, for the Rural Schools Center. That came out of House Education Committee with a lot of momentum but by the time it got to the House floor, it barely squeaked through, and it had less support than it had a year ago. Kevin, you noticed this, but um, some interesting folks voted against the Rural Schools Center bill. So let's get caught up on that. So this uh, Rural Schools pilot program, you know, a week ago, I think, I think we were looking at it a week ago, and it had gotten out of the House Education Committee with unanimous support. Yep. Everybody who testified spoke in favor of it. Legislators were, were kind of tripping over each other to sing the praises of the idea. 
of let's give this thing a shot. Let's help rural superintendents figure out ways to work together. Well, a funny thing happened between committee and the House floor. It passed on a 37 to 33 vote. Which so, means if two members had flipped their vote, that thing fails on a tie vote. Exactly. So that's a very narrow, uh, very narrow vote. A uh, couple things that I found telling. Uh, three of the four members of House Republican leadership voted against it. Uh, Speaker Scott Bedke did. The other three members did not. Five Republicans on the uh, Joint Finance Appropriations Committee voted against this. And here we're talking about some heavy hitters. Maxine Bell, the chair of JFAC on the House side, she voted against it. Wendy Horman, who is basically the, the budget architect in that committee, she does a lot of the heavy lifting writing the budgets. She voted against Didn't it. Didn't just vote against it, debated, debated against it. Debated against it and took pains to point out that she supported it a year ago and doesn't support it now. So that was a fairly telling uh, debate. There was even a member of the House Education Committee, Dorothy Moon, who spoke in favor of this in committee and voted against it on the floor. So very shaky level of support for this coming out of the House. It's still got to make its way through the Senate. And you would still have to, at some point, come up with funding for it, which... Which can happen. I mean, yep. there's, there's nothing stopping the Budget Committee from coming back together, uh, passing a, a trailer appropriations bill, as they call it. And that's fairly typical of the process. The, the Budget Committee wants to see a program get support on the policy end before they put money into it. Right. Stands to reason. So that could all still happen. But that vote on the House floor was, was fascinating. And I wonder if it doesn't portend more... Uh, turbulence and more trouble for this uh, proposal as it makes its way over to the Senate. And that's what we really have to watch. Last year, the rural schools bill cleared the House. So we've been here before. This is nothing new. The real test will be, uh, does the Senate Education Committee take it up? Do they pass it? How does the Sen- How do all 35 senators react on the floor? That's the test, right? And, and a year ago, it was a function of time. Yeah. The bill passed the House the day before uh, the the next to the last day of the legislative session. So it made its way to the Senate the final day of the session. Uh, Dean Mortimer, the chair of the Senate Education Committee, felt like uh, he didn't know enough. He had unanswered questions about it, so he decided not to, to go forward on it. Time is not as much of a factor now. You know, best case, if you listen to legislative leadership, we've still got two more weeks of session. So there's not a shortage of time for this to go through the Senate Education Committee or go through the Senate floor. Are the votes there? That's what we'll be watching for. Yeah, and we'll continue to watch that uh, every day. You can follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter, uh, where we will break all of our news. And some interesting stuff still. Uh, we talked about uh, how the rural bill may come before the Senate Education Committee. Some interesting stuff in the House Education Committee. You were there earlier this week when uh, Ron Nate's gun training bill, firearms training bill, got its full hearing in the House. Interesting coalition uh Pardon the pun. Shot down this proposal. Yeah. Uh, Representative Ron Nate, a Republican from Rexburg, was pitching a bill that was designed to create and encourage firearm safety uh, classes, uh, elective courses at the secondary level, at the high school level. These would have been optional gun safety courses. And specifically, his bill uh, would not have allowed the presence or the use uh, of live ammunition. So I want to be clear about what was in uh, the bill. Yeah. Optional gun safety courses, no live ammo. Um, it had its full hearing in House Education earlier in the week. And interestingly, um, six 
Republicans from the committee joined the committee's three Democrats in opposing that, and that was enough to secure uh, a vote of nine to six to hold the bill in committee, which essentially means they killed it. If it's dead for the year, right. So it's not going anywhere. There was an interesting way that the Republicans went about opposing this. They didn't really... Some of them talked about it. They loved the idea of a gun safety course. They talked about some law enforcement uh, preparation courses that they had liked. They talked about we have archery-type courses, and, and they loved the idea as a gun safety measure. They came at it from a procedural standpoint, saying, you know, if you make this an elective course, that takes about 60 hours of instruction. How much is this going to cost to get someone who's both a certified teacher and a certified firearms instructor to lead 60 hours worth of instruction, uh, a full quarter, Mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps a semester uh, of an academic school year? How much is this going to cost? Representative Nate had said that it wasn't going to cost anything because it wasn't a mandate. It was optional. Uh, And so that was kind of how uh, the Republicans went at killing this thing. They said maybe if this was more of a small unit and an existing course, like a law enforcement course, perhaps even a PE course, that they would have gotten behind that. But they kind of attacked it from a procedural standpoint. Certainly uh, some of the Democrats um, came at the more direct issue. uh, Is it even needed? Is it even needed? Mm -hmm. What problem exists that we're trying to solve uh, with these firearm training courses uh, and so it was kind of an interesting coalition of the six Republicans and, and three Democrats mustered the votes um, to kill that thing. And, and so it's dead for the year. And it's really, and it's an astute point that you're making here because we hear this from time to time on a lot of issues over at the, the State House a concern among legislators about where does instructional time go? Yeah. Where do the hours go in the, in the school day, in the school year? So that 60 hours is a concern. You hear it when the issue of assessments comes up. How much time are kids spending in tests, and is it time taken away from classes? I mean, we even saw a bill that passed the House easily uh, this week uh, to relax uh, instructional hours because of the weather, because of the storms. You know, I I think, yeah, legislators were really concerned about the finite number of hours in the school day, in the school year, and where does that go? So... um, Interesting that it came down to that for a lot of lot of members of the committee. Yeah, and I think that gets us uh, caught up on this week's headlines. Let's look. It's a- been a nutty week. It's been a kind of a crazy, goofy week over at the state. House. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Um, a, sure. a friend of a friend of ours, uh, Bill Spence uh, from the uh, Lewiston Tribune, who's a legislative reporter, comes here every year. Had a really interesting column earlier in the week talking about the theater of the absurd. He was talking about the legislature and how. Twice earlier this week, the Idaho House of Representatives grinded to a complete halt. It wasn't over education issues, Kevin, but what happened and why was this so absurd? Well, there's a lot there, and it kind of centered on a couple of bills that really aren't in our wheelhouse. No, not at all. But uh, one about notary publics, uh, a a bill that was read on the House floor for over, I guess it was about an hour yeah, 21 pages of 21 page bill. Uh, it was not exactly must-see TV for those of you who watch uh, uh, the, the live feed uh, from the State House. But that was a procedural battle that uh, pitted uh, some of the hard-right conservatives in the House against uh, House leadership. And you saw it resurface again on Wednesday, a uh, very rare sort of uh, procedural fight. And this was, Ron Nate was involved in this thing as well, where he was trying to 
pull a bill out of committee. It was actually a bill that was written by uh, a Boise Democrat, uh, Representative Alana Rubel. Another procedural fight, and it was a chippy legislative battle. Both of these were, where you could really sense that there was a lot of friction between legislators, between maybe more of the hard right conservatives in, in the House and some of the more uh, you know, establishment uh, leadership Republicans. Uh, you know, the tension was abundantly evident. As we head down into the end of the legislative session, it's really hard to tell how personalities and how you know, bad blood can, can affect uh, the way the process works or doesn't work. Like like we were saying, it didn't really affect education bills this time around, but all the big education bills, including the budget, still have to make their way through the House. The body language was bad. Some of the questions that the members asked each other appeared to be flippant, uh, <laughs> appeared to be sarcastic, appeared to be maybe a little bit angry. And, so and, for- and you had legislators, so civics and rules of the House lesson here. If a member of the House wants to ask a colleague a question, you have to rise and ask, will the, will the representative yield to a question? That's the first question you got to ask. Can I ask you a question? And on numerous occasions, you had House, House members saying, no, I won't yield to your question, which is almost, uh, pretty in-your-face, you know, leave-me-alone kind of a Almost thing. never happens. Hardly ever happens. It There's has usually... happened before. Several years ago, almost never happens. I had not seen it happen yet this year. And so what does this mean for anybody that said, I've heard about division within the Republican Party, but can you give me a clear-cut example? There you go. Yeah, There's your read example. Read the coverage from this week. Uh, go back and look at some of the footage of it. It, uh, it, it played out. So we will be there watching the uh, legislative endgame and see if any of this drama trickles into uh, discussion of education issues. So that'll keep us busy next week. And a reminder, a Tuesday is a huge day. For school districts across the state, $715 million in bond issues, plant facilities levies, supplemental levies will have complete coverage of what passes and what maybe doesn't pass uh, as uh, voters across the state go to the polls. And a reminder, if you're getting caught up on this issue, go to idahoednews.org. We've got a full rundown of what's on the ballot, full coverage, uh, particularly of the uh, the Boise bond issue, uh, some work that uh, we did with uh, Boise State Public Radio. So get informed and get out there. These are historically very low turnout elections, but a lot of money, a lot at stake for for schools and for taxpayers. So so get informed and make your voice heard. Wednesday morning before lunch, we will have a wrap-up at IdahoEdNews.org, putting the votes in perspective, letting you know what passed and what failed. All right, to send us home... Almost all session, legislative leadership has been targeting an adjournment date of March 24th. I believed it for a long time. I no longer believe it. I think we're going to be there at least another week, March 31st. Kevin, do we adjourn on March 24th, yes or no? No. Uh, you know, theoretically, they could. If the Budget Committee finished its work, that is usually the harbinger that you're two weeks away from adjournment. But I think there's... There's a lot of mischief going on, and it's not all education-related. I think there's a lot of movement to try to do something late in the session. It may have to do with transportation. It may have to do with taxes. It may have to do with health care. Education may be a secondary issue to all of that, but I think you add all of that up. I think we're there until the end of March. 
which pains you because you're going to have to uh, juggle tree fort around uh, the legislative endgame, but we'll, we'll get through it. I think I have some vacation time coming up, Kevin. Just <laughs> keep that in mind. No, I'm kidding. I'm no, going to do no, that No, no, no. We'll, we'll work it out. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, as always, uh, for listening. We always appreciate it. Every once in a while, we get a chance to meet one of our listeners, and that's always fun for us. We hope you guys enjoy Extra Credit as much as we enjoy making it. Thank you so much. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. 